1995, Pixar came out with a movie called Toy Story. Now this is a story of a boy who chooses toys. It was so successful they made three sequels in the last 25 years. Uh, when the boy acquired the toys, he would put his mark on the toys. Normally I think it was just he wrote his name on the foot. Um, so that everyone who saw these toys would know to whom the toys belong. The movies are about the plight of these toys. I never knew they had a secret life, but apparently four movies worth. And I believe the reason this is so successful is because we can identify with this at its core. We understand that we are forever trying to better our life. But in reality, the only way it's better is that the one who has stamped his name on us showers us with this overflowing grace. I know there are times where we've all felt as helpless as the characters in this movie. Um, there are times where you feel like something you've done would make the one who has stamped his name on you to love you less. But understanding this overflowing grace of God is a wonderful thing, not because it lets us live a stupid life, but rather because we realize that nothing that we have done could possibly make God love us less Amen. and nothing we will do will make him love us more. And we're often unwilling to accept the totality of this overflowing grace. Saul's conversion, which we'll talk about was for your sake. I, I want you all to take this very, very personally. God had you in view when he chose Saul and saved him by sovereign grace. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, because I read first Timothy one, 15 and 16. It's a very precious verse. It says, uh, and I'm, I'm sure some people in the back know that verse, but it says, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Howbeit for this cause I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all on suffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Paul is saying that if you believe on Jesus, in fact, if you may yet believe on him to life everlasting, this is for you. The story of Christ's long suffering should be vivid to you because God is knitting together his church and there's overflowing grace for all who believe. And Saul's is a picture of that according to his own words. One of the big picture themes of the Toy Story um, that I'm sure you're, you're all enthused about seeing now is the true satisfaction and fulfillment of fulfillment comes from their owner, not from being played with themselves, but, but from their owner possessing them. There are toys that didn't understand this in the third movie, which I just got this example earlier this morning from a friend who's an expert on Toy Story. And so I'm reading this from him. Uh, the evil character, Lotso Huggenbear, believes that life is all about him and his friends. He tries to hoard all the love from the older children himself and even kill Woody and his friends to perceive his own comfortable lifestyle. Now, one might admire his zeal, but it was unfounded. It was misguided, similar to a pre-conversion Saul. 
If you go back to chapter 9 and read the first two verses, and those of you who are looking at your watches, looking at me, saying if he reads all these verses again, we'll be here till 1. I will try to not read all the verses, but we strategically didn't have Ted read verses 1 and 2. And they read this way. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. He's looking for a permit to go into churches and yank people out and take them to prison. That's, that's what he's doing. Uh, I don't know how many of you remember the governor, Andy Bashir. He was the governor of Kentucky a couple months ago. He said he's going to go on Easter, go to the churches, write down license plates, arrest people who went to church. Uh, there's anyone you think is antagonistic of men of a certain age like me, we probably think of Saddam Hussein. If he were converted and started a ministry uh, for those who are stuck in Islam, trying to convert them to Christianity, that is how extreme this change was. Okay. Picture whoever you think is the most extreme. Some of you watched the news yesterday and you saw those people burning Bibles in front of the courthouse in Portland. Think of those people, God converting those people and them immediately starting. And that's the story. That's what we have here. Um, the, the, the Lord's sovereignty appears to you. Sometimes it has to knock you over the head and show you, here's what you're missing. Amen. And, and he says here, uh, in the, as was read, um, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting, which, which he doesn't say you're persecuting my followers. He doesn't say you're persecuting my people. He says you're persecuting me. God takes it very personally when people persecute his people. Amen. Okay. And um, he also says it, it's you like to kick against the pricks. Now, farm metaphors are normally lost on me. So <laughs> some people probably understand this far better. I have seen people prick things. But, but basically, what okay. basically what you're doing is you're pricking the ox before he plows the field. That's right. And you give him a little shove and he, he goes forward. Imagine if the ox were to back up into the prick so that instead of just getting a little prick, he gets stabbed. That's what he's saying Saul is doing. He's not, he's not going with the prick. He's, he's, he's going against it. And that's, and that's the picture here. So... I'm going to tell you guys a little story. Roy Honeycutt, some of you may know him. He was the president of Southern Seminary from 1982 to 1993. Those of you who were around before 1982 may realize that the Southern Baptist Convention at that time was a little more liberal than it is now. And uh, there was an attempt to do what is now colloquially, colloquially referred to as the conservative resurgence. Uh, they... But they were making this effort, and Roy Honeycutt, when he was appointed in 82, he was a self-proclaimed moderate who said his goal was to prevent a rightward shift in the seminary. So to this end, one year after coming in 1983, he found a particularly talented student uh, named Al Mohler. And from 1983 to 1989, while a student, Mohler was his uh, personal assistant. And everyone assumed that in 1989, when Moeller graduated, he would become the provost, which for those of you who aren't in school a lot, a provost is the person in charge of all the academics. Okay, he was gonna be the head academic guy, sort of like the second in command, okay, to this Roy Honeycutt. However, Moeller, shortly before his graduation, said he had his conversion experience where he became convinced 
that a conservative interpretation of scripture was the appropriate interpretation of scripture. And so he took a different job and he became the editor of the bi-weekly preaching magazine. Now, when God put you in a position to be changed, we read the story of Saul in verses eight and nine. He, he's blind, he can't see. His friends take him to a house and drag him. He needed the help of friends to get anywhere. And he was blind for three days, which that sounds bad. And he didn't get to eat for three days. And that sounds really bad. Okay. I, to me, that sounds terrible. But what happened was, um, you know, God was having him fast so that, that he could grow. Now, because God is knitting his church together, God changes you through this overflowing grace. Uh, we need to be ready as God is always working on knitting together his church. Saul experienced the trauma of discovering that everything, his religion, his righteousness, his belief system, his zeal, the very fabric of what he believed was all incorrect. He realized that all at once. You might need to accept that God might have something that needs a change in your life. You may see people today attacking the God we serve. You may see laws being rewritten to take God away. You may be disgruntled because the Supreme Court makes a decision that makes worshiping more difficult and that directly affects our lives, makes it more difficult. Maybe you have a benefit you thought you deserved. Maybe you didn't like an election. Maybe your life is getting inexplicably more difficult when you just made a decision on how you could serve God better. But we trust that when these things happen, that God is the one knitting together his church. Now, maybe you've been saved for a while. You say, I, I, I really can't associate with the Saul who was breathing out threatenings and slaughter. His very breath was like, this isn't a guy who just occasionally decided to persecute the church. That was his being. Maybe I can't associate with that. Well, maybe you can associate with the next person in our story, which is Ananias. Uh, Ananias is a... He's a, he's a seldom referenced hero of the faith. He served God faithfully. He had what we probably would say is a menial task, a task we know he didn't want to do. And even though it was seemingly simple, he, his actions helped lead to the conversion of perhaps the most influential post-crucifixion Christian of all time. Because God's name together his church, he will prepare you. The Lord calls us to do things. Now, now again, let's... Let's empathize here a little bit with Ananias. He was called to do something specific. And God called him to minister to someone else. That wasn't what he wanted to do. Now, some of you who know me may know that I am a fiend for sports. I've been accused of consuming them too much. I must admit these last few months without any were very difficult for me, probably more difficult for my family who had to put up with me. Um, I, in high school, I was similarly obsessed. However, I used to play them all. I played four sports in high school. Some of you are doing the math real quick. Wait, wait, there's only three. Yes, I know. I was playing two at a time at times. I, 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 was, I was doing a lot of the sports stuff. And then junior year of soccer, I tore my ACL, which at the time seemed like the worst thing. Did that hurt? <laughs> And what happened was God used that to help me become less obsessed with sports, as implausible as that may seem. Uh, he, he helped me to get to know and 
develop a better relationship with Kelly, my, my wife. Um, it was the time where I became more committed to a more strategic study of the Bible. Uh, he began to prepare me to be the man I was going to be. And I thought it was going to be terrible. But when we are reluctant to do things, and Ananias, we can empathize with why he's reluctant. Remember, when he turned on the news that morning on CNN, it said, Saul has just gotten a permit to take people out of church in Damascus. Well, we know Ananias lived in Damascus. He's thinking, it's me and my friends that are going to be grabbed by the scruff of the neck and carried out of church because that's, that's what it is. And so we can easily empathize with why he didn't want to do it. We, you are often commanded to do things that are difficult. But God doesn't say, yeah, you know what, and I, you're right, that is tough, let's not do it. In fact, what he says, and I don't want to reread everything that he did, but he says, the Lord said, go, for he's a chosen vessel. I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. The Lord told him to go, even despite the fact that was that. And so because God is in his church together, God prepares you. Sometimes I feel like the disappointments in life are merely God seizing control and letting us know of his plans for our life. Clearly, there are situations we don't like or we think we're going to hate. But those are often examples of God using our lives in the most profound way that he ever will. You may be a student in school taking a class you don't want to take. Uh, You may see other people who don't have to take it or they're getting to take a better class. And yet, God can do his most transformative work through you when you allow him to have the most control over these things. Uh, Oftentimes, those classes we don't want to take that we're forced to are the ones that have the very information we end up needing. But similarly, you may work in a restaurant, be trying to find a second job to make ends meet, be a stay-at-home parent wondering, can this be all God has for you? And we know that the Lord helps you accomplish those things he calls you to do. How do we know? Because we've, we can read the story here. It says Ananias, he went. Says, so for those of you who are big nickname people and think, you know, Jesus gave nickname to more than half of his disciples. Clearly, nickname is the way to go. Uh, Saul is still called Saul here. He's not called Paul for four more chapters. So it, it doesn't coincide. I don't know why, but you know, it is. But you might be called to minister to those who are your enemy. And it says, after he lays hands on him, scales fell from his eyes. The book of Acts, written to Theophilus, if you remember back several weeks ago, uh, when, he was, when we were early in Acts, it, most, all of the prophecies that are fulfilled in Acts are from the Isaiah. And it talks about helping those who are spiritually blind. And so this is Paul, or Saul, I guess, He is spiritually blind. He is also now physically blind. And Ananias lays hands on him. The scales come off. He can see. And it says in verse 18, immediately there fell from his eyes and he received sight forthwith and arose and was baptized. I'm going to tell you one of the things that endeared me to this church even more. uh, We're in a pandemic. People are saying, oh, you can't meet. You can't do these things. So someone gets saved. And they, they want to be baptized as they were told to do. And so what happens? Pastor Travis goes outside. We do it outside. It, just to be a small part of that was a huge blessing to me. It was fantastic. And so 
we see Saul doing this in obedience. He's working in obedience. Now, Carl Jung, who I have no, no thought that he might be saved, but he said the meeting of two personalities is like the contact of two chemical substances. If there is any reaction, both are transformed. When God has you interact with another Christian, particularly in a way, a situation that you weren't wanting, he calls you to act on that transformation. We don't get to hear a lot about the story of Ananias, but we do get to hear a lot about Saul. Most of the rest of the book is about him. And the last verse that uh, Ted read to us today was, and straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the son of God. You can, you can immediately minister where you are. Now, I don't suspect that most of us, when we first got saved, the first thing we did was go out and preach. I, I don't, that was probably not what most of us were doing. But realizing that, that Saul was part of the Sanhedrin, he was a Pharisee. So he said, what does that mean? Well, he, had, he spent his life studying the, the Old Testament scriptures. That's what he was doing. Uh, you say, well, did he really follow it? Let me tell you an example. You guys know that the word salary that we have comes from the word salt. Okay? So what used to happen is when they would get paid in salt, they would count the grains of salt to make sure that they could give 10% back to the church. This is not a guy who was taking these commands lightly. So when he received the correct interpretation of these things, he was immediately able to preach. You can immediately use your pre-conversion gifts to minister. You will amaze others by fulfilling God's plan. Now, it's, for most of us, it's not going to be preaching. And you guys have quickly learned that it's not for me. But, uh, but, but God will use us using our gifts that we have. Because God is in together his church, he will immediately use you. To paraphrase Martin Luther... He says, the Christian tree should bear fruit, and that fruit should have a demonstrable societal impact. If you profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the word of God, except precisely that little point which the world and the devil are at the moment attacking, you are not confessing Christ, however boldly you may be professing him. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady, you... You, uh, I lost my place. But to be steady on the entire front is mere flight and a disgrace if you flinch at the point where the battle becomes conducive. You may be a guy in the office. You're working in the office and you've accepted Christ, but your Monday thing, you've you treat Christianity, you clock in at what 10:59 on on Sunday, and then you clock out at with me probably later, but 12:01, you know. Uh, so. And you don't do it. But, but your belief in arts, sciences, politics, recreational activities, your conversations, all of these reflect who you are. This also exists for students, teachers, salesmen, Uber drivers, anyone who might live and have a conversation or beliefs in arts, sciences, and recreational activities. So God doesn't need you to become the foremost biblical scholar to serve him, but he does require that the education and life you've built be immediately surrendered to him. When we read in verses 23 to 26, um, it says, After many days were fulfilled, the Jews took counsel to kill him, but their laying await was known of Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and led him down by the wall in a basket, and when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he essayed to join himself to the disciples. We can stop there. They let him down in a basket. 
Your former friends will begin to work against you. This is almost always the case. Why? Well, because when you're converted, what are you normally preaching against? The very things that you had. So, so you, will, you will be moved by God to a new place. Your former friends will begin to work against you. And you might have new friends who have to let you down the wall by a basket. Your gifts come into play. Remember Roy Honeycutt, who I said was president from 82 to 93? When he resigned because the conservative resurgent in the Southern Baptist Convention was successful, there was legitimate worry that a real conservative would not be able to succeed him because none of, no one knew enough about him. And you're not just talking about you have to have a people with beliefs. This is like a school, accredited. You've got to like do all this stuff. That, you know, Not that it can't be done, but people need to learn it. And no one knew, and they're trying to get rid of all the liberal people in there. Someone remembered this guy named Al Mohler. His grooming was perfect. He knew the entire inner workings because his pre-salvific life had led him to the exact knowledge he needed to serve God after salvation. Those first years were difficult. Mohler, for those of you who know him, was described as having the brains of Erasmus and the courage of Luther, which I'd take either of those. Uh, because God is in together his church, he will use you. It was time for man. He was the man for that time. But you will be able to minister. Uh, it talks in verse 27 about Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way that he had spoken to them. Sometimes good friends are what we need. People who can lay the groundwork with us. God calls us into this family. He makes us part of this family, but a godly friend allows you to minister in new places, in places you did not know you would be used. Now, the end of verse 31, we'll read that. Or we'll just read the whole verse 31 because, you know, why not? Then the churches rest throughout all Judea and and Galilee and Samaria and were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost were multiplied. Saul saw his work paying off. For those of you who want to read the rest of the chapter, it tells similar stories about Peter, chapter 10 and 11, which Pastor Travis will get to next week. We'll touch on Peter. I'm, I'm sure you'll hear a lot about that as well. But you see Saul moving from a guy who was breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, now he's seeing the church grow. He's experiencing success because he was obedient and he, and he received this overflowing grace. Now, a lot of you are probably sitting there saying, so what? You know, you've, you've told us this whole story about God making a way for his glory, pursuing things, um, pursuing people who had no intention of living for him. But this is the turning point of Acts. The first third of the book, we hear about this guy, Saul, who's doing his best to thwart all efforts. We've talked about it in the past couple of weeks in chapters 7 and 8. You know, and, and we, at the start of this chapter, he's breathing out threatenings and slaughter. It's, it's, it's like his very breath. Everything he's doing is trying to do it. But, you know, after, after this in the book of Acts, we hear stories about a very different man. In many respects, to me, it is a great encouragement 
because very few of us have been breathing out threatenings and slaughter to the disciples of the Lord. There is, there is very little that we can do that would rise to that level. And even if we do, we know that there's grace for that. There's overflowing grace, as I like to say. It, it's a great encouragement to me. Um, we know that those of us, uh, those of you who have been studying Wednesday nights in Revelation, you may remember ver- in chapter 1, verse 17, where it said, I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not. This is similar to Saul. When Saul, when God is blatantly speaking to us, we need to not fear, but rejoice in God's forthcoming, overflowing grace and blessings he will do through us. This is a story that we often teach to little kids. But as adults, we tend to avoid it. And I think the reason is because it forces us to look at ourselves as helpless without the work of God. God is knitting together his church. There's overflowing grace for all who believe. But the kind of church God is building is founded on on the gospel. We can walk in the fear of the Lord, in the comfort of his spirit, if we receive this overflowing grace. The world can be mean and cruel, but it won't last forever. God is knitting together his church, which will experience eternity Why would we want to miss out on a foretaste of that now? Our trust in the sovereignty of God is like Ananias. He wouldn't have been less faithful if this story had turned out differently. We don't know a lot more about his story. As far as I know, he's not mentioned in the Bible again. But rather, we trust in the character of God and his overwhelming grace, regardless of what may happen. May it be said of First Baptist Castleberry, The church throughout all Castleberry, Central Florida, and the state of Florida was built up to receive this overflowing grace as they are being used to knit together God's church. Pray with me.